So we celebrate the coming of Christ in this season of Christmas. Christmas is really about the coming of Christ. We think of Christmas pretty much being about the birth of Christ. And it is about the birth of Christ, but the birth of Christ is the coming of Christ. So we live our life on the other side of the birth of Christ. We celebrate Christmas and we look back to the birth. But think about all those who went before us, who lived on this earth for literally centuries, having the promise of a coming Savior. We live on this earth, and we know the Savior has come. So we have a very different perspective. Christmas is not about just what happened in the past. Christmas is about the coming of Christ, His birth and also His return. We acknowledge Christ in His birth, the baby lying in a manger, but we must always remember His coming is more than His birth. We must not allow the birth of Christ to simply become a historical footnote in the celebration of Christmas. The birth of Christ is the manifestation of God's promises to His people throughout all the ages. Christmas marks the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ, the light of the world. Now think about this. The coming of Christ, who is called the light of the world, is an act of war against sin, death, and darkness, and against the devil and all of the spiritual host of wickedness. First John chapter 3, John writes, For this purpose the Son of God was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. So when God sent His Son into this world, it was an act of war against the devil, against the spiritual host of, of wickedness, against sin, against death, against darkness. This is why Jesus is called the light of the world. <clears throat> this is the eternal purpose of Christ, wrapped in humility, lying in a manger, and it is the eternal purpose of Christ when He returns, unveiled and glorious, coming on the clouds as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The world has attempted to neuter Christ and to tame Christmas. Have you noticed? So that we become blind to the real Christ and to the true significance of Christ's coming. Christmas is no more tame than the baby Jesus lying in the manger taking his place to crush the head of the serpent and redeem his glorious bride, the church. We read the Bible story, we read the story of Christ's birth, and we read where the king, Herod, when he found out about the birth of this child, sent armies to destroy all the babies, all the little boys, two years old and under. And if you can imagine all of those babies being murdered just so this king could hold on to his power. If you don't think that that baby lying in a manger was not an absolute threat to the forces of darkness, then, then we're not reading our Bible right. That is why the powers reacted the way that they did. And so from the moment Christ was born, there was an attempt to destroy Him, to end the purpose of God. 
So even though Jesus looked innocent, he looked absolutely harmless, lying in that feed trough, wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was an absolute threat to the forces of darkness. So much so that they attempted to have him murder wholesale. But here is the good news. The purposes of God, the plan of God, the eternal plan and purpose of God cannot be stopped by our enemies. Now they want us to think that they can be. The world today wants us to believe that Christ is irrelevant, that Christmas is about anything and everything but Christ and His coming. The world wants us to believe that the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus that we should be worshiping today. If you're going to worship a Jesus, it surely is not the Jesus of the Bible. If you're going to worship God, it surely will not be the God of this Bible because He is too out of touch. He is too intolerant. He is too whatever you want to say about Him. The problem with God is God is nothing like the world. And God does things in a totally different fashion than the world does. Christmas is a reminder for us of God's plan and God's purpose and how God operates that is so different from how the world operates. From the coming of Christ as that baby in a manger to the Messiah who walked the earth and preached the gospel and told of the kingdom, yet those, his very own people could not see him because he was so different than what they had expected, than what they had created in their own mind. Who is the God that you worship? Is he the God of the Bible? Or is he the God that you have created in your own mind? Or is he the God that the world has fashioned and created for us and tells us this is the God we must worship? Or will we go back to the Scripture, back to the Word of Truth, and worship the God of this book, the God of the Bible, the Creator of heaven and earth? Christmas marks the coming of this God, the coming of our Creator and our Savior. And the world's attempt to change the narrative has to be resisted by those who know the truth. Consider what Christmas truly signifies and realize it is anything but tame or safe. In fact, it's deadly for the enemies of God. And while the coming of Christ fills the enemies of God with terror, it should fill the children of God with hope. Advent is the season of our hope. Our hope is in Christ and our hope is eternal. We have every reason to hope and to celebrate for Christ has come. Christ is not just coming in the future. He has already come. And He didn't come to this earth and just leave us. He is abiding with us. Let's read Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. You can find Zephaniah. It's a little book toward the back of your Old Testament. A couple of books before you get to Malachi. Right before Haggai. Zephaniah 3, 14-20. The prophet writes, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, 
Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Let, your, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah was the last righteous king of Israel before the Babylonian captivity. Zephaniah is warning Judah and Jerusalem. Remember, the kingdom was divided. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. There were 12 tribes, 10 in the north and 2 in the south. It was Judah and Benjamin in the south. And by the time Zephaniah is prophesying to Judah and Jerusalem, the northern kingdom, Israel, those 10 tribes had already been carried away captive by the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was overthrown by Babylon. Judah witnessed the overthrow of the northern kingdom. They witnessed the sin of Israel. They witnessed the judgment of God. God gives to them hope. When God, anytime God announces judgment, which is okay, you guys can hear me, but it won't get recorded. Is it my batteries or is it the system? Okay. Well, I'm going to keep talking. Anytime God brings judgment, anytime God announces judgment, God does not do it without giving hope to his people. If you read the seven letters that Christ dictated to John in the book of Revelation, you see that as Jesus brings correction to the churches, he also brings encouragement to the churches. He tells them what he has against them, but he also tells them what they had done that was good, that was right. And here in this book of Zephaniah, this prophet is warning Judah and Jerusalem of their impending judgment. God is warning Judah of their impending judgment. But in the midst of that warning, God gives them hope. And this is what I want you to see here today in these verses. The promise of his coming provides hope for God's people. 
These verses in Zephaniah foreshadow the coming of the Messiah. And we see in the words of the prophet the promise of hope that God provided to his faithful remnant of the nation. God always has a remnant. And when we hear that word remnant, we think a very small number. And it does mean that it is not the whole, it's part of the whole. But I don't want you to ever think that God came to this world to save just a very small number of people. God came to save a world full of people. We know not everyone is going to be saved. That's why the Bible shows us the reality of hell. Those who reject Christ, those who reject the salvation that Jesus has brought to us through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension, those who reject that, they will live an eternity separated from God in suffering, in damnation. So we know not everyone is going to be saved. We're not universalists. We don't believe that God is going to save everyone. There are people, there have been since the beginning of creation, who will remain in their sin and in their rejection of God. And as the prophet is writing to Judah and Jerusalem, they are resisting the word of the Lord. And this is why judgment came to this nation, because they resisted the word of the Lord. God sent his prophets and proclaimed the good news of salvation, proclaimed the mercy of God and said, if you'll repent, if you'll turn from your sin. But what, what the people did was they would stone the prophets, kill the prophets, resist the prophets. Jeremiah prophesied almost 25 years. And the people would not heed his warning. And it was in Jeremiah's day that the Babylonians came and destroyed, carried away, the, the, uh, carried away Jerusalem captive, carried away Judah captive. Then they came back 20 years later and destroyed the city because even after the first judgment, they still would not repent. They still would not believe the word of the Lord. Now we live in a time, we live in a nation that seems bent on rejecting God. But I want you to understand, this is not anything new. This is the human condition. Remember when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes on Wednesday night, and we came to, to that part of Ecclesiastes where Solomon basically says this, history repeats itself because men forget. And why do men forget? Because generation after generation after generation, men are born into sin, and in their sinfulness, they don't know God. And this is why God tells his people. This is why God tells the church. This is why Jesus commissioned, commanded his disciples before he ascended to go into all the nations and to make disciples. And how are we to do that and how long are we to do that? Well, we're to do that until Jesus comes again. So generation after generation after generation, as new generations are born, guess what? The old generation is to teach them, disciple them, raise them up in the faith so that they don't forget. You go back to the Exodus story, and this is what God told Israel. When you come out of Egypt, I want you to keep this Passover feast every year at this time because I don't want your children to forget. I want you to do this every year for all the generations so that you will never forget what God did for you. 
What has happened? Well, what's happened is we have forgotten. And the reason we've forgotten is because we've not obeyed Jesus and we've not made disciples. And we've not been faithful to teach the generation. Sending your kids off to church or Sunday school, or, or, or that's not it. Parents, you've got to teach them. You've got to walk with them and disciple them and help them and, and meet them where they are with the hard and difficult questions of life. Don't shelter them from those things. They need to face the reality of this world that we live in. But they need to face it with faith in Jesus Christ so that they will have hope in the face of the hard realities of this world. Israel forgot because she began to chase after other gods. And in time, judgment came. America has forgotten. And we are chasing after other gods. And if something doesn't change, don't think God's judgment will not fall, fall in full force upon this nation. It will. I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. I'm just being realistic to you. And the reason I'm telling you this is because you have the answers. Because you hold the answer to the problem. Jesus Christ is the answer to the problem. Our answer is not going to be found in Austin. It's not going to be found in Washington. The answer is going to be found right here in this book, in these holy scriptures, in the person of Jesus Christ. And until the hearts of men and women are changed through the power of the gospel, this nation will continue to be in trouble. Just as the nation of Israel was in trouble because they turned away from her God and they would not heed the call to repentance. This gospel message that you hear preached every week is not just good news for your salvation. It is a call to repentance. It's a call for the church to repent. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm good. It's not me. It's everybody else. Well, then pray for everybody else. And this is what God says. God told Solomon as he dedicates the temple. He said, hard times are going to come. The people are going to turn. But if the people will turn back to me, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven. Then I will heal their land. This is not about the world turning. It's about the people of God turning. The problem we have today is not that the world is the world. It's that the people of God have turned away. They've forgotten. And in our ease, we have just thought that everything will continue as it has, as long as we've known it. But we're beginning to see that that's not the case. God provides hope, though. Whenever He points us to judgment, He also points us to hope. He points us to hope to the time when the Messiah will come. And the promise of His coming provides hope for God's people. And these verses foreshadow that hope that God spoke of when the people of God looked into the future of the promise of the Messiah's coming. Now we stand on the other side of the cross and we look back 
to the birth of Christ and we know that the Messiah has come. We know that Christ is coming. And in his first coming, he told us he will come again. So there is another coming of Christ yet. And what are we doing in the interim between the first and the final coming of Christ? Are we obeying the command of Jesus to go into all the nations and make disciples? Forget the nations, just just do it in your own home. Go to the living room, go to the bedroom, go to the backyard, go to the front yard, walk across your sidewalk, walk across your driveway, walk across your street, but make disciples in your home, outside of your home. This is how our nation will be changed. Listen to what God has done through the coming of the Savior. This is what he writes, the prophet writes this here in Zephaniah. Listen to what God promises through the coming of the Savior. He has taken away our judgments. He has cast out our enemy. He comes as the King and the Lord, and He dwells in our midst. Remember, He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He cast away our fear. John writes in his letter, 1 John, perfect love cast away all fear. This is what the coming of the Savior has done. It cast away our fear. And he commands us, do not fear. Church, don't fear. Don't fear the news. Don't fear the newspaper. Don't fear the politicians. Don't fear the protesters. Don't fear. God is Lord. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He has not fallen off his throne. He is not unaware of everything that's happening in and around your life and and in and around this nation and everything that's happening in the world. Do not fear. Don't buy the lie that the world wants you to buy that we should be fearful, that we should be running around and looking to men and looking to governments and looking to all of these other things, anything and everything except God. No, look to God and realize that all of those other things are under his lordship and he will use them as he sees fit, either for good or for wrath, for judgment. We have lived under a government that has been very good. We've lived in a world in peace in harmony, relatively speaking. It's a shame that people don't like history. But if you would just go back and read world history, you would understand that we live in a time in the history of humanity that is better than any other time since the beginning of creation. I mean, the fact that we're sitting in this room right here and you're sitting on foam padded chairs that are comfortable and we've got a climate-controlled environment with light, you're going to go home today and you're going to turn your sink water on and get a drink from that, and you're not going to have to worry about dying from dysentery because you did so. That hasn't always been the case in the history of humanity. And the reason that I point that out is because this is what God said the gospel would do. The gospel would bring good things. The increase of his government and peace shall have no end. You know why we have electricity in this place today? Climate control in this place today? It's because of the gospel. You know where you're going to go home and drink clean water today and not get sick from drinking it? It's because of the gospel. 
You know why you're going to get in your car and drive home and not worried about getting accosted or stopped? It's because of the gospel. You know why you can go to HEB and buy anything you want and get gas anytime you want and go to Walmart and buy whatever you might want and if you can't find it, you can order it online and have it delivered right to your door. You know why you can do that? Because of the gospel. You know what the problem is? Many, many people today, living today, don't make that connection. They don't understand. In fact, they think just the opposite. They think the gospel is the problem. And we need to get rid of it. God is the problem. We need to get rid of him. The Bible is the problem. We need to get rid of that book. I heard someone the other day, they interviewed them and they made this comment. They said, well, we're just waiting. We're just waiting for all of them to die off. And that's really what they want. And, and don't think that if we don't die off fast enough, they won't start killing us off. Because that's happened in history too. And the reason history repeats itself is because men forget. So I'm reminding you today, don't forget. What we have, we have because of the gospel. And it's worth fighting for. It's worth contending for. And we better do it. Now, out of our luxury, or we may find ourselves doing it out of necessity and a matter of survival. We're not to that point yet. But if something doesn't change in the church, don't think we won't get to that point, because we will. We have brothers and sisters right now in China being arrested, being incarcerated simply because they are Christians. You don't think the world is afraid of Christianity? The world's not afraid of the Western brand of Christianity. The world's not afraid of what Christianity has been turned into because of the world, because the church has been too cowardly to stand up for the truth, because we're more worried about being popular with the world than we are pleasing to God. But when you see true Christianity, you wonder why the communist Chinese government is afraid. If, if, if God is not real, they're atheists. They, they believe there is no such thing as God. What are they af- if God is not real, what are they afraid of? Why are they so concerned about something that's not real? That ought to tell us something here today. He is real. Whether they know it or not, they're afraid of something that is real. And Christianity is a threat to them because they are not believers. They are opposed to God. They're opposed to the God they don't believe in, but they're opposed to him. Do you know the devil doesn't care whether you believe in God or not as long as you're opposed to him? You can believe in God. You can go to church every Sunday. But if your life and your lifestyle is opposed to God, Satan's he's fine with that. You can be an atheist. He, he doesn't really care whether you believe in him or you believe in God. Because if you don't believe in him, he's, you're just helping him anyways. Now, God gives us these promises and he gives us hope. Today, God's people celebrate the birth of Christ while looking ahead to his return. We celebrate his coming that was at his birth, and at the very same time, we celebrate his coming that will be at his return. All the while, we celebrate the truth that he is 
present with us now. How is he present with us now? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The celebration of his coming is not only a past or a future event, it is the celebration of the now and eternal truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our hope is in the truth that Christ is present with us now through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And this is the promise he made when he declared to his disciples that he would be with them even to the end of the age. And his promise is affirmed in the letter to the Hebrews when it's declared of God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he didn't leave us. He poured out his Spirit and he dwells with us and he dwells in us by his Spirit. When Jesus was preparing his disciples the night of his arrest, he gives them hope by telling them that though he is going away, he would send the Holy Spirit who would be with them. He promised to come to them and not leave them orphans. He promised that they would see him and that they would know that Jesus is in the Father and that they are in Jesus and that Jesus is in them. Listen to John's Gospel, chapter 14, 19 through 20, Jesus speaking Jesus says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You live also. At that day, you will know. In what day? In that day that you know I live. In the day of his resurrection. Jesus is not talking about some future event that his disciples couldn't relate to. He was talking about his resurrection. He says, when you see me resurrected and alive... You're going to know. Well, what are you going to know? He says, at that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Listen, if you are born again today, if you are in Christ, then Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. He has not left us. He is present with us now. That's why our hope is not a past hope. It's not a future hope. It's a present. It's a now hope. We are never without hope in Jesus Christ. The same promise made to his disciples applies to us today. If we belong to Jesus, then we are in him and he is in us. We're not waiting for Jesus to come to us. He is not removed from us. He dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, poured out to all who are His. And that indwelling Spirit is the guarantee that we are His and that He will in fact return physically one day to this earth to rule and reign and we will be right there with Him as His glorious bride. The promise of God through the words of the prophet, gave hope to Judah and Jerusalem, but they also give hope to us today. The promise of His coming is for all of God's people. It is for us today as we look back to His birth and ahead to His final coming. Our hope is in Christ and in the promise of that coming. We have hope as we look to Jesus and as we see through eyes of faith and trust with hearts of faith. It's one thing to read the Bible and to see Jesus on the pages of the Bible. It's another thing to read the Bible and to see with eyes of faith and to know your Savior. To know Him from a heart of faith. That's why this book, you can read it intellectually and that's fine. But your intellectual reading of this Bible 
apart from the Spirit of God will not save you. There are men that are so educated, they're educated beyond any hope of spiritual transformation because their hope is not in the Spirit of God, not in the the power of God. It's in the power of their minds, in the power of their intellect. Listen, God gave us an intellect, right? God gave us brains to use them, and we should use them to all of their capacity. But our salvation is not about what happens here. Our salvation is about what happens here. You can read and study and do all kinds of things with your mind, but only God has the power to change your heart. And the gospel contained in this book we call the Bible, it has the power to change your heart. And it also has the power to renew your mind. And we should have both of those happen. We should have our hearts changed, and when our hearts are changed, we should become busy and consistent and diligent about renewing our mind to this truth given to us by God. If we'll do that, we'll see things change, not only in our own lives, but the lives of those around us. And if everybody does that, this is when you begin to experience real transformation in a nation, in a people. The celebration of his coming is what this season is about. And the coming of Christ provides a wellspring of hope that is eternal for all who look to him. In this Advent season, we celebrate all that the coming of Christ gracefully provides for those who have been redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ has provided hope eternal for those living in a world that very often seems hopeless. We meet people every day that are just hopeless. The suicide rate of people is skyrocketing. Now, why is that? Because people can't find hope. And the reason people can't find hope is because they're looking for hope in the wrong places. And when a person keeps looking, keeps looking, keeps looking, and they can't find hope anywhere, and they run out, and they've exhausted all of their their ideas and avenues of where they could possibly find hope, and they find everything as a dead end, guess what? They find themselves hopeless, and without hope, there is no will to live. And we somehow think that the promise of God means that we're never going to have any difficulty in life, and that's not true at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Jesus promised that we would have difficulty. And difficulty in life doesn't mean we don't have hope. Hope is about walking through difficulty, walking through hard times, and knowing that the hard times are temporary. The difficulty is what's temporary. It's our hope that's eternal because our hope is in Jesus Christ. And this is why we as believers, we need to be out there giving people hope pointing them to Jesus, the only hope we have in life or death. 
coming of Christ has provided that eternal hope for all of us living in this world that so often seems hopeless. In Christ, we are never, ever without hope. The hope we have in Christ was promised before time began. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul written as an encouragement to his spiritual son and a young pastor named Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul's introduction to his letter to Pastor Titus. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. When did our hope begin? Paul says our hope began before time began. Those words of the apostle tell us that the hope of eternal life was promised before time began, before the creation. That informs us that God has an eternal plan and purpose in all things. And this is why Paul can confidently encourage us with the words of Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That is God's eternal hope. In a temporal world. That promise in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. That is God's eternal hope given to us in this temporal world. The hope we have in Christ was promised and demonstrated throughout time. It wasn't just before time. It was since the beginning of time and continues even until now. Think about it. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve and all of mankind hope when he promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In Abraham, God spoke of the same promised seed and God promised childless Abraham. Notice how God works. God comes to us. You would think God would wait until Abraham has children, and then he would say, hey, Abraham, I'm going to multiply you like the stars in the sand. But no, God comes to Abraham when he has no children. Not only does he not have children, but he's an old man with an old wife, and they're past the childbearing age. And then God comes and says, hey, guess what, childless Abraham, barren Sarah, I'm going to give you lots of descendants. It's just counterintuitive. It's like... Why, why does God do that to us? Because God wants us to trust him. Because we say, well, that's impossible. That can't be. God says, oh, what's impossible with you is not impossible with me. And we see this throughout the scripture. God coming and telling man impossible things and then challenging them to believe for the impossible. This is exactly what God did with Abraham. And in giving this hope to Abraham, he provided hope not only to Abraham, but to all the families of the earth who would, have, who would by faith become heirs of the promise with Abraham through the seed who is Jesus Christ. We can go through the list of men and women God used to demonstrate and to bring forth the promised hope of the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Characters like Noah, Jacob, Tamar, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Ruth, Samuel, David, Esther, Daniel, Mary, and Joseph. 
John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, and countless others continuing even on today because your life and your testimony provides hope to those who are hopeless, that they would put their hope in the Son of God as you have put your hope in the Son of God. God may not be writing the Bible anymore, but he's still writing his story. And you are part of his story that he is writing. And I don't want you to ever forget that because that is important for us. It's important for us to understand that we are part of God's story. The hope we have in Christ is our hope now. The coming of Christ is not simply some historical event that has passed or some future event that is yet to happen. The coming of Christ is a past reality and a future truth, but it is also a present and abiding truth for us now. Christ is abiding in us and with us now by His Spirit. Our hope is not only past, it's not only future, but our hope is now. And it is eternal in Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want you to prepare to come to the table. This table is a celebration of thanksgiving that we have each week. And each week this table reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus. It's a constant reminder of his coming past present, and future. And in this table, we proclaim his death, Paul writes, even until he comes again. And there it is. It speaks of his coming, his birth, his life, his death, but it also speaks of his return, even until he comes again. For in his death, he has provided for us hope eternal. If you've never trusted in Jesus, trust in Jesus. Christian, come to the table. Let's all stand. Here's your charge today. The world desperately needs hope, and we have and we know the source of all hope. Now is the time for the church to wake up and step out. If you have not noticed, things are deteriorating at an ever-accelerating rate in our nation. We cannot run and we cannot hide from this reality. If we run, the problem will only follow us and be worse for the running. We must stand and fight the good fight of faith. We must endure hardship like a good soldier. We must become desperate for the power of God so that we can speak his word with boldness and see God bring a transformation. We must come out of our comfort and pray that God would use us in ways that may be less than comfortable for us. We must honestly pray and seek for his will to be done on earth, in us, as it is in heaven. We must intercede and pray as Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done, God. We must become strategically righteous. We heard about this today in our Sunday school lesson. Not just avoiding sin, but actively opposing it. If we're going to see our nation transformed and men transformed by the power of God, we must become engaged in strategic righteousness. We must contend for the faith, engage the culture, and trust in the Lord and the power of His might. We do all of this because there is hope. If there were no hope, 
all of our praying and all of our seeking, all of our working, all of our contending would be in vain. If there were no hope, God wouldn't tell us to bother. But there is hope. Our hope is in Jesus and our hope is eternal. Nations rise and nations fall. People come and people go. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of the Lord, God's word, will never pass away. Hope in Christ and know that your hope is eternal and it is never ending. Amen? We have hope. Don't lose it. Keep it and share it far and wide that men would not forget where their hope comes from.